Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Sometimes a person does not want to receive counseling because they are afraid to share their story. The complexity of shame and guilt and fear just incarcerates them, and they, they know that you can't help them without knowing the truth about their lives, but the inhibition effect is really forbidding for them, and sometimes it is even captivating. To counsel someone well means that you must know specific things about their lives, and so that brings us to a very important question. How do you build that trust in an individual's life to where they want to be self-disclosing, to where they want to open up and share some of the difficult and more challenging things about themselves with you? I had someone come to me recently, and they asked that question. They're actually counseling a lady who is struggling with a whole lot of guilt and shame, and fear because of the things that have happened to her. And they say, she's just not opening up. And I don't know how to develop an environment of grace that she could step into uh, where she would feel comfortable in sharing what has happened to her so that I can care for her. I can't care for her if she doesn't tell me her story. And that is definitely a problem in counseling. But as you think about these things, specifically creating an environment of grace for someone to open up, This has broad application, not just in a counseling office. Uh, This really has application in any relationship that you have. And so I would not want someone to to hear this introduction and to, to think, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not a biblical counselor. Well, there's a higher calling than biblical counseling, and that is Matthew 28, that we are to go and make disciples. We're all disciple makers, all of us who are Christians. And so... There are many contexts in which we find ourselves outside of a biblical counseling office where we want people to open up. We want them to share their story, but they're stuck or they're unwilling. For various reasons, they're not sharing their story. And so the big question is, how do you create an environment of grace that a person can step into to where they want to tell you what's going on in their lives because they want you to help them? And so this applies to the counseling office. It applies in a a marriage, absolutely, between a husband and a wife. Sometimes a husband and a wife can create pockets of silence between them because there is no environment of grace. Uh, For whatever reason, the hostility has grown to where silence now becomes the dominating theme of their lives and those pockets of silence metastasizes. Until now, there's such a wide breach that they're not talking to each other about the most important things, the things that they need to be discussing. And so, yes, this applies to counseling, but it applies to a husband and a wife. It also applies to parents and children as well. We want our children to be honest. We want our children to be open. When our children begin to create an alternate lifestyle that's so diverse from the life that you know them, then there is something wrong in the relationship. And I'm old enough to know and have a little bit of experience to know that it's not all on them. So sometimes when our children do nefarious things, one of the first questions that I ask is, what have I done wrong? Uh, How do I factor into this problem? 
I want to address the log in my eye before I begin to engage them because for some reason they're not opening up. They're not being transparent. There's something wrong with the environment of grace. And so that's what I want to talk about. Episode 440, when she's ashamed to share her story with you. Now this comes from a counseling case, but I am expanding it to make that broad application. So outside of the title, there's nothing to share here about the lady uh, involved, about where she lives or the church that she belongs. That information is not necessary. But the big idea is, and so as we, I I hope that all of us would be able to do some self-examination because we want to be that kind of friend to other people. And so for just a few moments, I trust that we can You can make this about you as I've been making it about me as I've been developing these show notes that I want to be the kind of person that people want to share their truth with. And so typically when you're expecting and asking people to open up in a counseling situation or a marriage or a family or a friendship, there are two things that that other person is thinking And there's two questions that they're asking, and they may not put it in these words, but these questions are certainly relevant. And you want to know them whether they can articulate them or not because you want to release them, and you will relieve them if you can answer these questions for them. Question number one, can I trust you? I mean, really. You want me to open up, and you want... You want me to go inside my idol factory, inside my heart, and share some things about me? Can I trust you? And then question number two is that, will you help me? I mean, why should I share this stuff with you if you have no skill? Why should I take my car to someone that I trust but yet has no skill? He doesn't know how to fix my car. I need to take my car to someone that I trust and has the competency to help. And so if you're a small group leader and you have a sanctification group that is about transformation and you're asking people to open up about their lives, then, well, just please know that everybody in the room is thinking one way or another, can I trust you with what you want me to share? And then if I share it, will you help me? And so one of the things that I shared with Uh, The counselor that was asking this question is that, is her story too much for you to hear? I mean, can you trust it? Will Will you mishandle her truth? Because we can mishandle someone's truth, and there are several ways to do that. In fact, let me mention five of those, and this is not a... This is not an exhaustive list. These are just five things that I have encountered in all the training that I've done in biblical counseling. Uh, and so, and, and again, they're not in any particular order. But if you want to try to discern if, if someone is uh, un, unwilling to open up and to share truth, again, you want to make the first examination yourself. And so what vibe are, are they getting from you? What, what is it that they are feeling? What do they think about you? What are you giving off? How are you stewarding their truth? How are you going about opening up uh, or creating rather an environment of grace? Here's one of the ways that you can mishandle truth. Self-righteousness. I mean, imagine a husband and a wife. Let's say a husband, for example, since I am one and I have done this many times. If I'm looking down my nose at my wife and expecting her to open up to me, guess what? She's probably not going to open up or not open up all the way to where she's uh, sharing the truth that I need to know in order to come alongside her. 
It's rather easy and tempting to look down our noses toward other people and have a, a greater than, better than attitude. And it may not be who we really are, but it could be that vibe that we're putting off. You see, you have to recognize that a person who comes to you who's struggling like this lady is in this counseling session, she already sees you as higher than she is. See, she sees you as calm, cool, and collected. Uh, she, she sees you above the fray as a person who has it together, the therapist who is going to help me, who, who is the answer man in my situation. She has already elevated you. And so one of the things that you don't want to do is to have a self-righteous attitude toward her. Like one of the ways that we can do that is being annoyed with that person. Maybe when I say self-righteousness, you say, well, no, I've never done that. I would not do that. That's just like, that's just awful. Well, how about if we use a synonym for self-righteousness and say, I'm annoyed with you. If a parent is annoyed with a child, a spouse is annoyed with another spouse, that is a self-righteous attitude. And what happens, what needs to happen is we need to come down from our lofty perch. Now, in a counseling session, one of the ways that I do that, actually, there's two. I'll share both of them with you. One of the ways that I do that, come down from my lofty perch and just let the counselee know that, really, I'm no different from you. I was cut from the same Adamic cloth, and I struggle as you do. may not be the exact same problems, but I struggle. And one of the ways that I communicate that is by sharing appropriately some of the failures in my life to let them know that I'm not as calm, cool, and collected as you might think. And so with appropriate sharing, I want them to know that, that I have failed, I have sinned, I have made some mistakes. That really, I've seen this so many times where you can just see a person almost exhale when they realize that there's two sinners in the room, not just one and the perfect counselor. Now, the second thing that I share, and I really want them to know this, is that, and sometimes I'll ask it this way, who do you think the biggest sinner in the room is? Through my eyes, through my lens of my glasses, from my perspective, who is the foremost sinner? Well, I take Paul's perspective on that, and he saw himself as the foremost sinner. And I want them to know that I do not see whatever it is that they're sharing or whatever it is they are about to share, that it's going to be worse than anything that I have done because the truth is, from my perspective, whatever they share will not come close to what I have done. I killed Christ. And I say it just that plainly, just that directly, just that bluntly. I put Christ on the tree. And so from my eyes, through my lens, it would be hard for me to look down on you when I am the cause of the death of Christ. And by the way, when two people are thinking that way, when a husband and wife think that way, they're not going to be annoyed with each other or they won't be annoyed long because you can't keep looking down your nose at someone when you're looking up to Christ on the cross. And so two of the things that I do to help relieve a person, the tension in the room, is I let them know appropriately some of the things, and it changes from person to person. It depends on what we're talking about as far as my failures are concerned my sins, but then also let them know that who the foremost sinner is in the room. But I just don't stop there because I want to offer them hope. And so as I share some failures, as I talk about putting Christ on the cross, as I see myself as the foremost sinner, I want to give them hope. And you do that in two ways. 
And so you tell them that God's Word has an answer for whatever you are going through. That's thing number one. And then thing number two, you say, I know this is true because this is what God has done for me. And so one of the ways that we can mishandle the truth about an individual is that we can be annoyed with them. I'm labeling this, I'm using the big bucket word of self-righteousness, and there are a lot of words that go inside the self-righteous bucket. But if we are self-righteous in any iteration that we can be, uh, then we are not going to steward their truth well. We're going to mishandle their truth. There won't be an environment of grace, and they're going to shut down. Another way that we can mishandle the truth is by worrying. You can become overburdened by someone's story. And when you are overburdened by their story, guess what? You're going to start overcaring for them. You're going to do what Paul implied we should not do in 1 Corinthians 3.6. He said, Apollos watered, Paul planted, God gave the increase, not us. God gives the increase, and we can't cross the line. Our job is to water and plant. And one of the ways that you will know that you have crossed the line and you feel the burden for transformation for them is that you're worrying, not resting. Worry is one of the clues that lets you know that you have gone too far beyond watering and planting, and you feel too much of a burden for this person to change. That is not on you and you're mishandling the truth, you're mishandling their story, you're mishandling the counseling session. And so self-righteousness, worry. Number three is anger. Now, I mean a specific kind of anger in this context of mishandling the truth. That's when you take up an offense for someone. You see, when they tell their story, and sometimes they'll tell their story about this is what this person did to me, you can become angry at what that person did. You can take up an offense for the person who was hurt. And that is the difference between empathy, discipleship, and sympathy, discipleship. It's all about the preposition. Empathy counseling is the word in, where you jump in the water to save a drowning victim. There's no lifeguard in the world that would do that, or they know not to do that. That is the last resort. But sympathy counseling is you are with them. That is a different preposition. You're not going to jump in the water with them, take up an offense, and solidify their victimization by being angry at what the person did to them. No, that kind of anger will mishandle their truth. You're going to be a sympathetic listener and a sympathetic counselor. You're not jumping in the water. You're going to be with them, beside them. You're going to be standing on the deck, on the dock. You're going to be standing on the boat, and you will give them the restorative help that they need, but you're not going to jump in. And so when they share the story about what happened to them, you are a sturdy counselor. And you're not overcome by that, and you don't take up an offense. If you get angry, you will mishandle their truth. Number four is fear. We can become afraid when we think that we're supposed to bring change. Now, it's kind of tied to what I was saying with worry a while ago, but I, I, want to, I want to speak about it in a different context. You see, one of the limitations of a biblical counseling framework is that you have six, eight, ten sessions, whatever they may be. It varies, of course. But regardless of what that is, there is a definite start time and a definite 
ending time. And sometimes counselors can feel the weight of that. They can feel pressure. Some counselors even use uh, success uh, and repentance or success and transformation as synonyms. Biblical success in a counseling office is not necessarily transformation. In fact, I would say that most of the transformation, the, the significant transformation that happens in a person's life or significant repentance typically happens outside the counseling office. You see, counseling, because it's a truncated artificial window for transformation to happen, we're asking too much. And if the counselor is the kind of person that places that kind of weight on them and they can only interpret repentance as counseling success, well, they're going to feel miserable, but it could also tempt them to be manipulative and to press too hard because they're motivated by fear because the transformation is not happening within the counseling timeline. And so if you are afraid in the context in which I am describing it, you can mishandle the truth. And then number five, the fifth way we can mishandle the truth is condemnation. Now, condemnation is a little stronger than self-righteousness. We can look down on someone and be annoyed with them and maybe huff under our breath. But to condemn her is a more active, more vibrant, more volitional choice. It's a practical rejection of her. She shares her story, and I just reject her. This is kind of like the woman in adultery. They were condemning her, and that's why Jesus said, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so these are just five ways. It's not an inexhaustive list, but my point here is for to stir up your thinking about how to create an environment of grace. And this, what I've been describing to you, is how we can hinder or basically implode an environment of grace in a person's life to where they will not disclose. There will be not only pockets of silence, but there will be distance between you and them if you do any of these condemnation, fear, anger, worry, and self-righteousness and other things that I trust that you will add to this list as you self-examine. Now, we're trying to create that context of grace for this lady to be able to open up. I talked about the disadvantage of counseling, especially if counseling is not a subset of the church. And so if there are polar opposites where you have uh, local church discipleship on one side and you have biblical counseling on the other side, I will take the church discipleship context every time. Now, my hope would be that biblical counseling would be a subset of church discipleship. But biblical counseling standing alone is working at a definite disadvantage. And so discipleship for a situation to where we're trying to get people to open up, then there is not a better context taught in the New Testament than a church environment. Well, obviously the home and the family environment would be better, but I'm speaking about the greater body of Christ where we gather, and so the church environment is the second best context for transformation to happen, only second to uh, uh, our families and our home life. Now, let me give you several reasons for that. One, there's no artificial timeline for change. I talked about counseling being six, eight, ten sessions, something like that. You see, church care is unlimited. It's unlimited discipleship until that counselee or that disciple, until that Christian meets Jesus. 
And so you're in this context forever until you pass away, until you go go to heaven. And so there is no artificial timeline when it comes to church discipleship. Number two, you can slow down each meeting, which is can really be relieving to a person that you're trying to get to to open up whose feet and you can they can feel pressure or maybe that you feel pressure as a counselor to speed things up to get done you see in a counseling construct you're looking at six mile markers six counseling sessions or 10 mile markers 10 counseling sessions and you look up the road, and you say, well, we've got three mile markers left, and we're going to be at the end of the road, and this counseling is going to be over, and you can speed things up. I know of counselors, and I may or may not be one of them, who have sped things up in a counseling session because I was trying to get this person to the place of repentance. Can you, can you hear out how arrogant that is? But you put them in the context of a local church, and then you're, you're driving through a neighborhood and you see the signs that say, slow down, children are at play. And you can slow down. And that is a relief to the counselee that you're trying to press to open up. And it is a relief to the counselor who may start manipulating situations to get them to open up. Number three, you can build relational bridges for the future. Because you know that when you're counseling a person who is wrapped in some deep and complicated sin, there may be a time or two where you're going to have to say some challenging things to them. Well, you want to make sure that when you do that, that you have built a fortified relational bridge so that you can carry that heavy truth over to them. If you try to carry heavy truth over to someone and you haven't built that relational bridge, well, then you, the truth, and them are all going to end up in the ravine, which leads me to my fourth point about why discipleship uh, is better in a local church than just the straight-up, isolated biblical counseling where you're trying to get someone to open up. Building a relational bridge, my fourth point here, is that you can care for this person in many contexts, and that's how you build a relational bridge. You're not just meeting them in a counseling office. Uh, You can meet them in a coffee shop. All the church meetings that you have, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, small group meetings. Uh, You can go shopping together. You can go hunting together. You can go to the gym together. Uh, You can have parties. You can have fellowships. You can have cookouts. There are so many things that you can do together that is just not counseling And when you do that, you're starting to build a relationship, which is something that's virtually impossible in a counseling construct. That's why counseling, subsetting inside the local church, is the best of all worlds. And so point number three was to build a relational bridge. Point number four, the way you build a relational bridge is through these multiple contexts. And then point number five, this will be my last point, in in creating an environment of grace to uh, help this person to open up and be self-disclosing, is that you will have these non-discipleship contexts which will put the counselee at ease where they're not thinking of you as that sterile, perfect, therapeutic, distant, above-the-fray counselor type. 
You want them to see you in different contexts, not just to bring them relief and to know that you're just a regular person, but also so you can model the gospel before them. You see, you're teaching them theoretically what they should do from God's Word, but what about if you were in a church discipleship context where you engage the people that you are serving outside the counseling office, where they saw you interacting with your wife or your husband, interacting with your children, They see you in these various contexts where they get to know you, and so now they have built a relational bridge. They're meeting in all these other contexts where they are experienced discipleship, not just from you, but from other people as well. They're being ministered to, but they're also are ministering as well because there's the reciprocal effect of discipleship. It's not all about us just receiving, but now this person is providing, is giving, is caring for others. And then they're interacting with you in contexts where they're seeing you model the gospel. And so the question is, is that we want to help the person, uh, but because of how this person is stuck, they're so ashamed of what is going on in their lives. I talked about how you can mishandle the truth and how you can create that environment of grace. And then I talked about how the local church is a huge supplemental asset. In fact, it is the ultimate thing. Uh, It is the final thing. It is where you want them to be because you don't want to create a counselor dependency. And so you want them to be part of a local community. And let me give you a few thoughts about that because you want to be careful as you begin to bring up this idea about communal integration in the local church. Remember, the problem is, is that she's ashamed to share her story with one person. And if you bring up that you need to engage inside of a community, well, I mean, she could flip out over that. And that could really shut her down. And so you want to make sure, and because discipleship uh, is an unlimited process, you're not in a counseling context uh, where, you know, we met five times and now you need to be part of the local church and we want to integrate you into the local church. Well, you can imagine what that could do to her soul. I mean, it could just frighten her and, and she could completely shut down. But as you care for her by building that trust She trusts you. Um, By being competent, you're able to help her. You're able to hold her, uh, steward her truth. And so now she is revealing things to you. And you begin to introduce a lifetime communal context for her in the local church. Here are a few things about making that introduction. Don't press it too soon. Don't press communal integration too soon. Prior to doing that, uh, you want to make passing references and eventually uh, factual and, and, and full-throated uh, concepts about the local church and her future with the local church. She needs uh, to be envisioned that this is the place, that body-to-body ministry is absolutely essential. Sometimes I've, I've told counselees that uh, I don't want to be your life coach. Uh, I don't want you to come see me next year. And I say that tongue-in-cheek, but what I'm saying after I built the relational bridge, what I'm saying to them is is that don't come back to me. And, And sometimes I've said it this way. In order for you not to come back to me a year from now, one or two things are going to have to happen. One, you're going to have to never sin again. Like just cease from sinning. If you cease from sinning, you won't need to meet me again. And then number two, since number one is not really an option, uh, 
Then number two, integrate yourself in a local church and receive the care of that church as you learn to care for others. Now, if you immerse yourself in a local assembly and there is body-to-body ministry, you're going to receive ongoing forever care and you are going to be a dispenser of ongoing and forever care and there will be no need for you to ever meet with me again. Now, I say all of that tongue-in-cheek, but I'm also serious as a heart attack as well. And then we continue to talk about this need for communal integration. And that's part of my envisioning speech if I have the relational bridge built with them. Now, as far as her story is concerned, that was the big issue. She was afraid to share her story. Uh, sometimes in a situation like this, I would let her or anyone know, him or her, but let, let them know uh, that you don't have to tell other people all the stuff in your life. That's not your identity. If you are in Christ, you have His righteousness. You are in union with Him. Your identity is Christocentric. Uh, You don't want to like, hey, my name is Rick, and here's the six horrible things that have happened to me. Now, perhaps you want to share your story. Uh, Perhaps there are appropriate times to talk about what God has done in your life. I was saying that earlier. I do that in counseling sessions sometimes. This is where I failed, and this is what God did by His grace. And maybe when she gets to that point to where it's a two-sided, uh, two-sided story, this is what I did and this is what God did, well, then maybe she will be, by that time, she'll be comfortable about sharing parts of her story, but it's not necessary to share all of her story to everyone that she meets. And by the way, that's not wise because everybody will not be able to steward some of the things that have happened in our lives. And so there's a wisdom issue here, but I would definitely want to remind her that as I'm trying to motivate you to integrate into the church community, I am not saying that you have to do there what you're doing here, sharing everything. I'm trying to get you to open up, self-disclose, be vulnerable, Uh, be uh, transparent, be honest, because I want to help you. But when I talk about integrating into the local church, no, I'm not saying you have to do that. And so we will walk through that as when that time comes. And then finally, she does need the care of others for the rest of her life. I have already said this. You want to put her in a forever care system, and that is the discipleship community that is happening in a local church. Now, this is episode 440. A counselor came to me and said, how do you help a person who's too ashamed to share her story with me? Well, I've outlined some of the things that I do. I trust that they are beneficial to you. I do have a call to action at the end of this, and uh, I won't share those questions with you, but you are, are... Well, let me share a couple of them. Uh, Question number three, why is a church environment better in most situations than an exclusive counseling environment? And I trust that you would be able to answer that question, and I trust that you have a high view of the local church, and you truly do believe uh, you're you're not kicking biblical counseling to the curb. I would not do that. I would not want you to do that. But if we want to do discipleship well, then biblical counseling really has to be a subset of a local church, which may mean that the local church needs to get on uh, with learning how to be a caring community of Christ-like disciple makers. And my final question, number five, I'll just do three and five, and you can read episode 440 to catch the other call to actions. But do you want to mature in caring for others? Uh, Maybe there's some growth for you in this area. 
Uh, maybe you want to learn how to create an environment of grace. Maybe you want to learn how to draw people out, ask the right questions, bring competent care to them. Uh, be that person that people trust and they want to self-disclose to you because they trust you and they know that you can help them. Well, if you sense a need to grow in these areas, then I would just appeal to you to take advantage of our Mastermind program. If this is the season for you, because I know it's not the season for everybody, uh, it takes time. There is a commitment. Uh, it is well supervised. I mean, it's hands-on. It's not cookie cutter. Every person is, is customized as far as their training is concerned. Uh, there's interaction with the schoolwork that they do. There's interaction, daily interaction on our forums. There's hands-on supervision. And so it is a thorough training program, but there is a time commitment. And if this is a good season for you, it can be done. We've had a lot of people to finish it. We have a lot of people that are doing it. And so I'm not saying it can't be done, but if you want to discuss that, I would love for you to come and ask and uh, learn more about it. Now, there is an intermediate option. We call it Leaders Over Coffee. Leaders over coffee are people that are not taking the Mastermind program. Maybe this is not a good season for them, or they really just want something else that doesn't take as much of a commitment. Or there is a middle space that we have. We call it leaders over co uh, coffee. And these are folks that are on our private forums where they receive soul care training help all the time. In fact, there was a lady that just uh, yesterday, she commented on the forum. Uh, she is a biblical counselor, and uh, she, she doesn't participate in the forums a lot as far as talking, but she reads them a lot. And she had a question that she wanted to ask yesterday. She did. And when she responded back, uh, she said, I just love these, uh, these forums. They are so amazing and I love reading them. And so she's receiving intermediate training by being part of our private forum community. And so I want you to know that that is available. It's not just the mastermind program, which is a fuller commitment. We would love for you to do that. But if you want to be part of our private community, you can do that as well. And that is a good training venue for a lot of people. All right, so this is episode 440, when she's ashamed to share her story uh, with you. Thanks so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.